Romans 12, 3 through 8. And if you're there, say yes. Let's read. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Very interesting passage, and I'm looking at this, and what I see here is humility leading to impact. And that's what I want to title my sermon today, Humility Leads to Impact. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning. Help me to speak and communicate your truth, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts that we might receive your word today as, as our authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Humility leads to impact. Two themes that are connected together in this passage. Be humble and have a great impact. Be humble and have a great impact. But we've got to start with be humble. For 15 years, Jim Fox ran 80 miles a week. He was in the best shape of his life, yet at 52 years old, he dropped dead one day with a massive heart attack. His wife said that Jim had no idea that he had heart problems. The doctors said, explained that because he was in such great shape, Jim didn't feel the shortness of breath, breath which uh, signals uh, heart disease and he was simply unaware. The moral of the story is this, you might be good at a few things, but don't overestimate your view of yourself. You might feel like you are spiritually in the best shape of your life, but have a sober view of yourself, meaning get real with yourself. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Are you thinking rightly of yourself? That's the question for today. Are you thinking rightly of yourself? Look at verse 1, or verse 3 rather. The apostle uh, explains, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, meaning a word from God, with the authority of God. Paul is instructing his reader, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But, contrast, think with sober, everybody say sober, judgments. Each according to the measure, another key word there, measure of faith that God has assigned. Now measure here is a word that refers to quantity, meaning what he's talking about here is the quantity or the measure of faith that God has given to each of us. Meaning, this is kind of interesting to think about, God has given different measures of trust, different measures of faith to different people. For example, 
One woman might exude an incredible trust in God. As she goes through the darkest storms of life, her sun is always shining because she trusts in the Lord. Her eye is always fixed on Jesus and her eye is always fixed on that finish line. And it's as if nothing can ever shake her unwavering faith. I would say that an incredible measure of trust has been assigned to this woman. Whereas another Christian feels much weaker, prone to being discouraged and downcast. He wants to have this kind of unwavering faith that he sees in his friend, but like Peter, he so often looks at the waves and takes his eyes off of Christ and starts to sink, and he's pulled up once again. He's not lost. He's got Christ. But he's weaker. What God has told us here is that we have all been assigned a measure of faith. An ability to trust God. And we're to soberly examine ourselves and think of ourselves according to the measure of faith that God has given us. Now, some argue that this leads to pride. If, if I might view myself as one that has been given a good bit of faith, then I might be prideful over and against those who have lesser faith than me. But look at verse 1. He says that this is a measure of faith that, quote, God has assigned. God has assigned the measure of faith that I possess. Meaning, what room do I have to brag about the faith that I possess? Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, pride is dampened when one recognizes that the faith one has is a gift from God, not the result of one's own virtue. Meaning, if I assigned this faith to myself, then I could boast in, hello, myself. But if God has assigned it, if, all, if even our faith comes from God, then we give God all the glory. And there's no room for a braggadocious spirituality. The main point of the passage here is to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but have instead a sober estimation of yourself. Now this is connecting us back with verse 1, which we looked at last week, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your mind. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing for us now is he's showing us what the renewed mind looks like lived out. Step one, renewed mind about ourselves, about how we think of ourselves. And what he's showing us here is that we are not to have an inebriated view of self. What does a drunk view of oneself look like? A drunk or inebriated view of yourself, it looks like this. You think your particular gifting is so special that people possibly cannot live without you. And that you deserve more than the next guy. An inebriated view of, of self looks like this. That you believe that you don't have any need for the body of Christ. You don't have any need for honesty with somebody else. You can handle it on your own. You don't need accountability. You don't need people looking over your shoulder. You don't need to share your weaknesses with others because what you feel like you need to do is keep your reputation. Pride looks like this. It's presenting our view of our self-successes and our skills in a way that doesn't match reality. The prideful person is the king of spin. Meaning, 
If something in their life looks bad, they've learned how to spin it and somehow always make themselves look good. You know who's, I, I, maybe it's because they're my peers, but you know who's prone to this? Pastors. I've known so many pastors who somebody leaves because they don't like them. And they say, we sent them off. <laughs> We've commissioned them. Like, no, they actually just didn't like you. And that's okay, you know? It's okay. But see, in our pride, we, we want to spin everything to make ourselves look better than we are. So don't be inebriated, be sober. Now, what does this not mean? What does sober-minded not mean? Just, just for the sake of putting it out there. Humility does not mean self-hatred or self-loathing. It doesn't mean that you're always talking bad about yourself and that you lack in confidence. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite, and we're going to see that. To be drunk is to have a skewed mind. Now, I know none of you have ever experienced that, but if you could imagine what it's like to be drunk, you know that you don't always think right when you're drunk. Well, what's the opposite of being drunk? It's to be sober. You see, to be sober-minded is to be real. It's to be, it's to be uh, uh, feel the gravity of this world. It's to live in this world. It's to feel the ups and the downs and the joys and the pains. To be sober is what God wants of us. And he wants us to be sober-minded as we view ourselves. Meaning, what he's saying is this, is be honest with yourself. We, are, we, are, we read this morning the Ten Commandments. We're not, we're not to lie. We're not to lie. That is the ninth commandment. And the person who has, a, has a, an inebriated view of themselves, they're prideful, they're actually lying to themselves about themselves. And so he's just simply calling us here to honesty. Are you with me so far? Now this passage, I think, is just brilliant. The more I studied it, the more I fell in love with it. What we see here is, is, is this. A right view of ourself leads us to viewing ourselves as part of the body of Christ and to know how we are gifted to serve the body of Christ. Meaning, to be sober-minded is to know that we are gifted. I mean, think about this. The person who knows they're gifted, you might think, is prideful. And God is saying, no, knowing how God has gifted you to serve the body is actually how you develop sober-mindedness. We want, as human beings, we want to be useful. The problem is that we are, get so focused on how we are going to be useful, or how we are not being useful, that we just become self-conscious and self-consumed and self-focused. And the result is that we're not useful to anybody because we're just looking at ourselves. Our solution is in these next five verses. So how does humility lead to impact? Two big points I want to draw out from this passage. Number one, know you need the body. And number two, know you are given to the body. Let me break this down for you. First, number one in verse four, know you need the body. Now, when I say the body here, I'm referring to the body of Christ or as it relates to our experience, the local church. Look at verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. Now, if you grew up in church at all, you've probably heard the human body used as an analogy for the local church. I don't want the familiarity of it to fade this illustration's force in your life. It's a brilliant illustration. And scholars kind of debate where Paul got it from. And, and I, I think Paul probably just 
came up with it. I think it's his own. It's a brilliant analogy. What he says is we've got many parts. I mean, think of your body. You've got two hands, two feet, two eyes. You've got shoulders. You've got knees. You've got foreheads. They serve some fun function. I'm not exactly sure what. You know, you've got ears. I mean, we've got all of, all of these different parts. Now, the, the, the body, though made up of all of these different individual members, is one body. Are you with me? Meaning the foot does not constitute a body. The eyes disconnected from the body are no good. Hands cut off from the body will wither and die pretty quickly. Now due to the Jewish-Gentile theme that we've been looking at throughout Romans, we can assume that there is ethnic tension in these churches in Rome. And, and they're, they're dividing themselves in all sorts of ways. And ethnic tension doesn't go away. It, it, it continues. Various forms of prejudice continue to haunt the human race as of today. And as a result, so often we divide based on our differences or our perceived differences, as if the color of our skin really makes us different. As if the amount of money that we make, whether you make a lot of money or a little bit of money, actually makes you different. As if the kind of house that you live in, whether it's a big house or a tiny little apartment, actually makes you different from one another. No, it doesn't. The world says it does, but this is where the church becomes a countercultural society. Where we come together of like what the world will call rich, middle class, working class, and poor, and black, white, Latino, Asian, and we come together as one because we discover that the, that, that, the, that the ground is level at the cross. And we come through the same blood, and we are of the same family. We are one body. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here, is, is you are one. You're one. Not introverts over here, and extroverts over here. Not one ethnicity over here, and another over here. Not those who have and don't have, but we are one body. And we need each other. We need to be part of this one body. Look at verse 5. He goes on to say, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So what he's saying is, is I'm no longer my own but rather I'm a member of this body. Church, you need the body. You need the body. One of the clearest demonstrations of pride or inebriated thinking is to believe that I don't need the church. I saw a t-shirt for sale on Instagram the other day that says, I divorced the church, not God. That doesn't make any sense. Because God has married himself through Christ to the bride, which is the church. They don't understand. <laughs> That's all. The church is the body of Christ on earth. The church has been founded by Jesus Christ. And when I say the church, I don't mean some ethereal, sort of spiritual, metaphysical kind of connection with people that you don't really know. I'm talking, Jesus said the assembly. Like actual flesh and blood assembly where Matthew 16, where Matthew 18, if somebody goes astray, you can be like the good shepherd and leave the 99 to go after one. You can't do that if you don't actually know people and what their name is. And, you know, as if the church is just this idea. But no, it's, it's, an, it's an assembly. This is why we gather. We are a local church in covenant with one another. And the church has the kind of power that the gates of hell will not prevail against. The church is called the pillar and the buttress of truth. 
When I feel as if I can get along without a covenanted community to the people of God, I'm, I'm slipping into pride. So all of us, from the elders, pastors of the church, to the deacons, to the new, newest believers, we all equally need each other. All right, so number one, you need the body. Have a correct view of yourself. Number two, number two, listen to this. You are given to the body. So I'm kind of turning it the other, other way. I'm saying the body needs you. All right, you're given to the body for the benefit of the body. Look at verse 4. He says, members, we are members of one body, yet the members do not all have the same function. Think about this. The hand doesn't function like the foot. The shoulder doesn't function in the same way like the elbow, as similar as they may be. The members do not all have the same function. Paul goes on to explain this. He explains that every single member of the body has a spiritual gift. Now, let me just pause you for a second here and point out what's been pointed out uh, by, by various uh, theologians and scholars and, uh, and, and students of the Bible. Paul has never visited the Roman church. He doesn't know most of the people that he's talking to. He knows some of them, but he doesn't know most of them. So, so we can't say that Paul has been, like it would make sense if Paul's been there and spent a few years with them, and then he's writing to them saying, every one of you has a gift, having these various gifts. Well, that would make sense because Paul's experienced it, and, and he knows that Tim has a gift, and he knows that Tamika has a gift. Like he's, he's seen them in operation. Paul's never been there. But he knows they have a spiritual gift, every one of them. How? Well, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So who's received a gift? Each one of us has received a gift. We affirm this in our statement of basic beliefs as a church under the line, the ministry and spiritual gifts. This is our statement of faith. I just want to read this to you. It says, we believe that God is sovereign in the bestowing of spiritual gifts. It is, however, the believer's responsibility, responsibility to attempt to develop their sovereignly given spiritual gifts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion and is the placing of the believer into the body of Christ. We say that because that's when spiritual gifts are given. We, are, we also believe that particular spiritual gifts are neither essential, proving the presence of the Holy Spirit, nor an indication of a deep spiritual experience, meaning you don't have to have one particular kind of gift to prove that you have the Holy Spirit. We believe that God does hear and answer the prayer of faith in accordance with, the, with his own will for the sick and afflicted. We believe it is the privilege and responsibility of every believer to minister according to the gifts and grace of God given to him. We're drawing right out of this text right here. That we, each one of us, are called to minister to each other according to the different measure of gifts and grace that he has given to us. Look at verse 6 in the passage. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So what is a gift here? This is typically referred to as a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a particular ability that God gives you for the benefit of the church, for the building up of the saints, or for his ministry as we reach the lost. You, this spiritual gift ability may or may not match your naturally born abilities. Meaning, you might be a teacher in a school, and you become a Christian and you discover that while you're really naturally gifted to teach in the eighth grade classroom, you don't have the spiritual gift of teaching the Word of God in a way that really makes sense to the people of God. And that's okay. They don't always match and line up. Sometimes they do. 
Sometimes you might discover that you're a teacher in the 8th grade classroom, and also when you open the Bible and in a Bible study and you teach something, it's fruitful. Or you might discover that, no, as I'm gathering with the people of God and as I'm talking to people, what I discover is that when I open my mouth and I try to encourage somebody who's downcast, who's suffering, they actually are encouraged. And I know that's not me. It's a gift of God through me. So you might have the gift of encouragement. Meaning it's, it's, a, it's an ability. It feels kind of normal. But it's used powerfully for eternal purposes, for the building up of God's people. Now, Paul assumes that all of them have gifts. He says, having all of these gifts, all of you members. And they're given by who? Tells us in the text, given by God. So this is from the Lord. And it's according, verse 6, to the grace that he gives us. Meaning even these then are no reason for us to boast because it's just God's grace to us. Not because of some inward virtue that I'm able to develop on my own. So, you all have a gift, all right? How do you discover it? I've said this before. You discover it through being in the body. It's not through taking an online test and finding out what your spiritual gift is. It's not through sitting on your couch thinking, what do I want to do? And that's my spiritual gift. Not necessarily. You discover your spiritual gift through being in the body and discovering how God uses you in a fruitful way to build up the church, the church of God. So if you're like dipping in and out and, and we never see you minus like a, hey, before you leave, you're probably going to have a hard time discovering your spiritual gifts because you've got to see how he's using you in the body. So what do we do with them? Well, he tells us in verse 6, he says, let us use them. Use them, church. Use it. A violinist willed his marvelous instrument to Genoa, a town that he grew up in. And he, he gave it to this town on one condition. He said that it should never be touched or played. And it was an unfortunate condition because what I'm told about wood is that wood, as long as it is used and handled, shows little wear. But once it's discarded, it begins to decay. And his violin has since decayed. It's become worm-eaten. It's now an unusable relic of the past. Saints, how many of you know that life, withdrawn from service decays the soul. Yes, God has given each one of us a gift, but if we withdraw, we will decay. And so Paul just simply encourages us in this way. He says, let us use them. God has gifted you. Use your gift for the building up of God's people. Use your gift persistently. Use your gift regularly to serve the congregation. Now, how do you know if you're in a congregation where you can use your gifts? Easy test. It's one, one question. Does your church have people? <laughs> if the answer is no, then find a church with people because you're the only one and that doesn't constitute a church. If the answer is yes, then you're in a church where your gifts can be used. I'm always so confused when somebody says to me, I left my previous church because they didn't have any ministry opportunities for me. My first thought is, oh my goodness, their church must not have had any people. <laughs> because if there were at least two or three, which is what biblically constitutes a church, they would have had plenty of opportunities for service. 
You see, our church, you know, we've got over a hundred other members that have committed together in this body, and that means there are over a hundred ministry opportunities, and every one is complex and real deep and more beautiful than you realize and harder than you realize, all right? We've got plenty of ministry opportunities all around us. That's the life of the local church. That's the ministry of the local church. You see, I think what people often mean by this is my previous church didn't have the programs that I wanted to serve in. But you see, Paul never says anything about programs. The New Testament doesn't say anything about programs. Now, programs can be great. Our church has some programs. But programs are only as valuable as the connecting people with people in real relationships. I think sometimes what people mean by that is they didn't have, my previous church didn't have the kind of people that I want to serve. You know, Paul, again, he doesn't say serve a certain portion of the body. You know, uh, uh, they didn't have, you know, my, the previous church, they were all elderly or they were just all young uh, or uh, they were all middle class or uh, you know, they, they, they weren't the kind of people that I want to be serving. Oh, God, help us. Help us when we tell Jesus Christ who died for the saints that there is a kind of pe- person that I want to serve. How do we know if this person is worth us using our gift? Well, are they a human being? made in the image of God. Christ died for them. Don't you realize that they've turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? And don't you realize how much their, 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 their old nature still tugs at them and is warring with them and they look to be so polished and put together? Don't you realize how they need you to come alongside them and encourage them in their fight? I mean, everybody, everybody needs our ministry. We come together as one body, and you are given to this body. So, you have spiritual gifts. What do you do with them? Let us, say it, let us use them. Exactly. Now, as he explains how we do this, this is real practical, he talks about how we use our spiritual gifts. And he gives us seven different examples. Seven different examples. Now, are there more than seven spiritual gifts? Yes, uh, because there are others that are listed in the New Testament. So why seven? Oh, let's go to Wednesday night Bible study, Revelation. When we see that number seven, Dina, what does it typically mean? Completion. It's the whole. Exactly. This is, this is the way they would write back then. And so he's using seven as a way to basically say what I'm saying about these seven really refers to the whole is to all of them. So let's just study this. Let's look at this, uh, these examples of seven. And then I want you to apply this to your own life as you think about how God has gifted you to serve the body. The first one is prophecy. In verse six, he continues. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. First Corinthians 14 tells us the prophecy are revelations from God that are put into the mouth. Throughout the New Testament, prophecies can be predictions at times. Prophecies often uh, display the, the will and, and, and proclaim the redemptive plan of God. It's revelation directly from God. This is, uh, by theologians, considered to be a revelatory Gift. Now, whether or not the revelatory gifts are still in operation is not, it's beyond the scope, it's, it's important, but it's beyond the scope of this passage. And I don't have time to get into all of the ins and outs of that discussion. But what I do want to focus on is this, is what he says about the prophets. He says, if prophecy to do so in proportion to our faith... Now, I think what he's doing is he's warning against the prophet who uses their gift to wow the crowd, which we've actually seen in Old Testament examples. Beyond uh, uh, the, the genuine nature of their own faith. 
And so what he's saying is, is your gift is to be used in proportion to your faith and for faith, for the building up of faith, not for your own benefit. The second gift uh, uh, listed here is the gift of service. Verse 7, if service in our serving. The, the gift, the spiritual gift of service is a unique ability to serve the needs of people. Now, of course, all of us are called to serve, and this applies to every spiritual gift. We're all called to serve, but some, you know this, some just have like this unbelievable ability to just keep serving. They see a need that like nobody else sees, and they're serving the body without, you know, 90% of the time, people don't even know they're doing it. What a wonderful gift that is. To see, to evaluate, and to meet a need. Number three, teaching. Verse 7 continues, the one who teaches in our teaching. Now, teaching is a spiritual gift that God has uh, uh, given to be able to explain his word in a way that makes sense to the people. And typically, I would say it also produces fruit. So often when I'm uh, examining the gift of teaching in somebody, one of the questions I'll look for is not, not so much how they present it or their persuasive tone or whatever, but in your teaching, has there been fruit? Has God used the teaching of your, the Bible to, to convert people and to, to encourage the saints? You know, is there fruitfulness in your teaching, the gift of teaching? Number four, exhortation. Verse eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. That word exhorter can also be translated comforter or encourager. God uses this person to exhort, comfort, and encourage. To comfort the suffering mind. To find comfort in God. To encourage the lazy Christian to find passion in the gospel. And God has gifted some of you with the ability to do just that. Now notice these Last three that I just mentioned, service and teaching and exhortation, it feels almost a little redundant in the way that Paul's writing. He says, if service in service, if teaching in teaching, if you are, uh, uh, have the gift uh, of exhortation in your exhortation, what's he saying here? He's not being redundant. He's saying, look, if God has given you the gift of service, serve. That's what he's saying. Serve. Exercise your gift in the kind of work where you thrive. Serve. He, what he's saying is this. Is he's saying hone in on the gifting that God has given you. Don't try to imitate the gifts of somebody else. Listen, perhaps you admire a certain Christian and you look up to them and you think, man, I just wish that I could do fill in the blank like they do. And you begin to try to imitate the gifting of somebody else. What's happening now is that you are being distracted from your own impact that you can have in the body because you are trying to clone another Christian. But he's saying, how has God gifted you serve in that way. General application. I want to give you two general applications as we go through this. General application number one. Don't be envious of another's gift. Don't be envious of another's gift. Not one Christian is called to serve every need. And that includes pastors, by the way. By the way. Pastors are not the, the, the uh, service providers for the church. The church is the service providers for the church. Not one person is gifted to meet everybody's need. Your envy, then, of another's gifting is as ridiculous as a hand envying the eye. Or a foot 
trying to imitate the work of a shoulder. Now, sure, eyes often get the praise. But we need feet. Often the hands get the praise. But what's a hand without a good shoulder? See what I'm saying? Are you jealous of the measure of faith, the kind of gift that God has given somebody else that he hasn't given you? Is you're seeking to imitate another's gift, distracting you from the way that God has gifted you in serving the body? Question, how should we respond when we see somebody who really just has an extra measure. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you, you kind of think, like, I've thought this before. You kind of think, like, in heaven, you're going to be in the corner, and there's going to be a real long line to try to meet this guy or this woman. You know that feeling? Like, they are eternally going to be somehow praised. All right, when we, when we encounter that in somebody and we're feeling that, like how, how should we respond when we, when we see that in somebody? Let me give you just a couple quick responses. Number one, be thankful for the way that God has gifted them. Be thankful because this gift is not about them. It's about Christ. And they are not going to be eternally praised. It's Christ who's going to be eternally praised. And pray that God might use them mightily to build up the church of Christ for the glory of Christ. So be thankful for them. Know that their gift is God's grace to them. Just as, just as you are humble in your own gift, their gift is, they, they have it because of God's grace. Number three, know your gift. How has God spiritually gifted you to serve? Number four, don't be distracted from your impact that you could have in the church because you're trying to imitate somebody else. So here's my big, you know, I'm kind of wrapping up my general application number one here, but I want you to focus, pray, practice, and excel in the spiritual gift that God has given you for the benefit of the church. Are you with me? All right, going on in verse 8, the last three spiritual gifts that he mentions have to do with attitudes. That's what he points out. So he says in verse 8, the one who contributes in their generosity. Generosity here means like a single-mindedness. Meaning contribute without ulterior motives. God has given some people the unique ability to acquire and distribute. To make and to give. He's even gifted some people who don't make much money to somehow figure out ways to be super generous. I literally know some Christians who just are constantly giving, giving, giving. And God just continues to provide so that they might continue to give. And I know that sometimes we, uh, personally, because the prosperity gospel has done so much damage, uh, I'll, I'll sometimes hesitate in explaining that or teaching that, but it's true. And I've seen it in my own life. God provides to some so that they, my point is this, we are all to be generous, amen? Yeah. And some are just gifted with generosity. Now, when they give, what's the attitude? to do it with single-mindedness, with simplicity, with, without ulterior motives. This is not to get praise. This is not to get the name on the side of the building. You know, we're not putting anybody's names on our pews. But we will take your money for a pew if you'd like. <laughs> um, verse 8 continues, the one who leads, with what attitude? With zeal. Now, zeal here is where the Paul uses for his own zeal. I think this is one of Paul's spiritual giftings. To, to persuade people. The ability to influence others. And what he's saying is, is if you have that God-given ability to influence others, 
pour yourself into it and do everything that you can to invest energy and time in influencing others toward Jesus Christ. Verse 8 continues, the one who does acts of mercy with what attitude? With cheerfulness. You see, some people have this God-given ability to see the broken, the hurting, the sick, the elderly, the disabled, the poor. They're able to see what others don't see. And they're able to act in ways that others didn't think of acting. That's, that's the gift of mercy. To see and to act. What's the attitude? He says, do this with cheerfulness. Why cheerfulness? Well, I, I think it's because those who have this particular spiritual gift are at times prone toward bitterness. Because this particular spiritual gift takes a lot out of you. To constantly be pouring yourself out in mercy to others and this person can easily become discouraged. And what he's saying is this, is do it with cheerfulness. Sure, you might inspire others along the way to work with you in showing more mercy, but recognize, saints, God has given you this gift. This is a gift he's given you. So therefore, don't despise it, but willingly pour yourself out and be glad in your mercy. Now that leads me to general application number two, which is this. Don't become bitter with others because they don't have your spiritual gift. All right, so my first general application was don't envy the gift of another. Now I'm saying don't become bitter with other people because they don't have your particular gift. You know the thing about eyes? Eyes are so valuable and important, they, are, they, they become super prideful, and eyes think every other part of the body ought to be an eye. Did you know that about your eyes? Mouths do the same thing. Mouths think every part of the body should be mouths. I'm just kidding. But you get the point. You get the point. Like, you, you see the gift that God has given you. You see you're, you're operating in this way. You're, you're serving in this way. You're pouring yourself out in this way. You're contributing in this way. And it seems like you're the only one. Why, is another, why aren't others contributing the way I contribute? Why aren't others showing the kind of mercy that I'm able to show? God has given you so much uh, energy and eagerness to serve and to pour out, and then you look at others and you judge them for not having the same kind of energy, for not having that extra measure that God has given you. Recognize that we are all different. And that, yes, while you see something and God is using be glad that not everybody has your gift. Because others are serving in ways that you haven't even thought of. So therefore, be thankful, not bitter. So how does, how does humility then, humility meaning a sober mind of oneself, a right view of self, how does humility lead to impact? This is it. You ready? Know you need the body and know that you're given to the body. And you will have a right view of yourself and you will simultaneously become useful to others. Amen? Amen. That's it. I'm done. That's the message. You, you're you're a, a beautiful work of God. An artist who was given a, 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 some canvases, he ordered some canvases, and they were blank still, and somebody that was delivering the canvases to this famous artist, they said, are these canvases worth a lot of money? And the artist looked at them, and they were blank, and he said, no. But they will be. Once he's finished. Look, bad religion thinks of all of this as if you are the artist working out your own canvas. 
as if you have to figure out how to serve in some ways and how to love in some ways and how to do all of these things in order to earn heaven, in order to earn the favor of God, in order to create your beautiful canvas. And that's why bad religion puffs up. Because you look at your art piece and you say, this is what I did. Now the gospel says that Christ is the art piece and he is the artist. And he's shaping us and he's made us into his own image. And so at conversion, we have become a beautiful art piece. And so we don't serve in order to present something to God. We've been given something by God. And so therefore, what do we do? Oh, let us use them. We serve other people. Don't you know your value, church? Your value is not seen in your service to others. Your value is seen in Christ's service to you. The Son of Man who came to serve, not be served. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of a man, and he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Oh, Christ humbled himself as he touched the leper. He humbled himself as he opened the eyes of the blind, and and his humbling took him to death, even the death on the cross. He humbled Himself as He hung on the cross for your sin and for my sin, taking the judgment of God in His own body on the tree. Friend, if you do not know Christ, turn to Him and find forgiveness. Find life now. Open your eyes and see the Savior. He is the glorious art piece of God. And His life is given so that you might live. You see, three days later, the earth shook and the stone was rolled away and Christ defeated sin. Christ defeated death. He got up from the dead. The stone was rolled away. And he looks at us and he says, all who are weary, come and find rest. All who turn, all who trust, come to me. Listen, Christ has beautifully designed you to be used for His service. So, may the God of peace who brought Jesus up from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good so that you might do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for His work. We thank You for uh, the, the way that You have saved us and equipped us for the benefit of others, God. I pray that we would humble ourselves and find that You have done something in us to make us useful for Your body. Give us a right view of Christ and a right view of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.